old is your daughter? She's 12. So in 12 years, how much have change have you seen just within the work of advocacy, within the cultural um, you know, treatment and stigmas? Like what changes have you seen in just the last 12 years? Um, I've seen you know, from the- a lot of changes. ABA went from uh, ABA therapy, applied behavioral analysis, went from experimental therapy to the gold standard um, in care. So that's a huge thing. And now, you know, all of our you know new families, you know, that are, you know, 18 months, two years, three years that are getting that first diagnosis are able to get those services early on so that hopefully, you know, any of the challenges that they had in the beginning are kind of, you know, they're able to transition into like a regular classroom when they're ready to start school because they've, you know, already addressed some of those behaviors instead of letting them go. And now like my daughter is middle school now in a self-contained classroom, you know, and I'm not saying that she might not have been there if we did something else, but, you know, I always wondered, you know, would she be, you know, in a more mainstream classroom if, if we would have had access to a lot of those therapies then 12 years ago that, you know, we're able to have now because, you know, I guess insurance regulations have changed and, you know, it's, it's definitely become more accepted now. Um, and just, you know, getting the insurance to cover services, that's such a huge thing. So are you seeing families now get the resources that you wish you had had when your daughter was younger, just sooner? Yes. For sure. And I know like Autism Speaks has helped push to, you know, get the diagnosis earlier um, so that, you know, the families are able to get the help, you know, before, you know, everything becomes critical, you know? Yeah. Um, what, this might be a little bit kind of going out of sequence, but I'm thinking we should talk a little about the, what autism is and the impact it has. Uh, you had mentioned that one in 36 people in the U.S. now, the CDC just came out and said, have autism or are on the autistic spectrum. So let's, yeah, give, so let's give viewers like a refresher of what that word means, because um, it can, the meaning of those things, especially when you have nowhere near the experience of it, when it's outside of your realm of life, it just kind of a word we use. But like, what does it really mean? What do we mean when we talk about autism? Right. So autism is a developmental disorder. And in the DSM-5 manual, um, it's defined as like a set of uh, repetitive behaviors. Um, A lot of they'll have sensory processing disorders sometimes mixed in with that. Um, It's also common to have co-occurring disorders like ADHD. Um, What makes autism tricky is the one thing that doesn't really show up on a test. Um, You have to get an evaluation. And right now they're using the ADOS or CARS testing method and insurance requires that to be done by either a developmental pediatrician, a pediatric neurologist, or a clinical psychologist. Those are the only three types of people that can diagnose so that it's uniformly you know, done on a global level. They, they use the ADOS and CARS testing method um, outside of the United States as well. Um, I know with my daughter, um, she was the youngest of four and I knew something was different. I didn't know what, but I knew something was different. And then as she got older, you know, we're, you know, not quite 18 months old yet, but she's still like not responding to her name. I thought maybe she was deaf. We weren't sure what was wrong with her. I would clap my hands. She wouldn't look at me. I'd stomp my feet. She wouldn't look at me. 
and I would try to put my face right in front of hers and she would always look past me, you know, never at me. Um, so we, you know, had her put under to have her hearing checked. They said her hearing's perfect. We had genetic testing done. They're like, she's perfect. Um, and then her uh, pediatric neurologist decided after running every other type of test that it has to be autism because it's the one thing that doesn't show up on a test. Um, so we were able to, it was not fun to get the diagnosis, but I guess in a way it was a relief because now I knew, you know, what path we needed to go to get the help that, that she needed. Right. Yeah. I can only uh, imagine, you know, you've, you've been in the room with, I'm sure many other parents as they get that news or as they're beginning in, in the beginning processes of ingesting and, and coming to terms with, with that diagnosis. Um, what, I'm I'm very curious about why are they so specific about who is doing the testing and making the official diagnosis? Like, is that is that a difficult process, or is this? It, it's helpful? not a difficult. They need to have, I guess, the right qualifications for it, and also like the ADOS and CARS, it can take you know between seven and eight hours. It's like a three part appointment, so you have the parent interview. Then you have the direct assessment, um, and then you have the parent consultation. And so it's not something that a pediatrician, like a family pediatrician, could do. They're not trained to to provide you know that diagnostic uh, testing, and also they just they wouldn't have the time. It's too time consuming. Can you imagine if a pediatrician? took someone in and it would be like a four or five hour long appointment, they'd be able to see like one patient a day. So being able to hand that off to the people that specialize in that testing, you know, is where that, because you don't want a wrong diagnosis either. And if you let someone who's not trained do that diagnosis, if you get a wrong diagnosis for not the right thing, then that can create a problem too, especially if you're trying to medicate, you know, you know, some of our older kiddos, I know my daughter's one of them takes medication. I wouldn't want to give her medication for something she doesn't have. So you want to be really, you want, I like that they're picky on that because you don't want to have any doubts in that diagnosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause there is too many opportunities, especially in just the world of mental health and, and whatnot where you can be given the wrong diagnosis and the team will just wrong with it, you know? Um, right. So uh, I definitely see the benefit of having the right person do the right, the right test, the right, you know, six. Yeah. And I know it's frustrating for our families because of the, the length of the appointments, you know, those diagnosticians can only take so many clients per week, you know, and so sometimes there can be a long wait list, you know, for families. And I know that's yeah. um, a struggle as well for some families. Do you find in Texas specifically, I guess, in the area that you live in or with, with the families that you work with, um, commuting is finding the right specialist, finding doctors, finding, you know, care. Is it localized or is it kind of a stretch? Do people have to go out of their way to kind of find you know, to go to doctor appointments or find right. uh, kind of like the right. It, really depends. it depends where you are. I know in the Dallas Fort Worth area, we have an abundance of doctors and therapies that families can have. Um, so it's not really so much a problem, but in our more rural areas, like I know we've had families like in the Tyler area 
that have made a three hour drive to Dallas to get that diagnosis because they only had one diagnostician and they had a one year wait list and they need services now. And without that diagnosis, they can't get the services or get insurance to pay for them. Um, so that can be really tricky sometimes. Yeah. And insurance isn't going to pay for the gas to get their home. So yeah. In a perfect world, right? <laughs> when pigs fly, I think that's what the old saying is. Um, it's incredible. I'm just thinking about like, I'm trying to conceptualize the trials and tribulations that are just unnecessary when trying to get help for your child. It, it, it makes your work obviously so necessary and, and admirable and effective. Um, I'm curious, do you ever see in the network of people that you work with, not necessarily families, but other resource providers, that people disagree on what works and what doesn't? Or is there kind of a unified agreement for most things that like, obviously we have the gold standard for therapy, but are there other things people will kind of argue about, disagree on, have different views about, you know, is effective or is everyone kind of on the same page usually when it comes to what works and what doesn't in the autism experience? Right. And, and the, generally speaking, everyone kind of agrees the ABA is beneficial and where the disagreement comes is, I guess, the intensity of it. You know, the younger the child is, the more intense, you know, you want that program with that goal of them being able to start kindergarten in a regular general education classroom. Um, and a lot of parents don't, you know, always feel comfortable with 40 hours a week of therapy, but it is play-based. It's not like you sit at a desk and do work. It's play-based. So, you know, think, you know, instead of taking your child like a Montessori school or something like that, you know, they would be getting that one-on-one -on -one help in a clinic. Um, but a lot of families really struggle with that idea because they think it's too much or the day is too long. But, you know, because it's play-based, the children have so much fun. They do. It's to them. It does. I always say if you're doing ABA right, it will never look like you're doing work because they you know, they have so much fun when they're with us. Um, but I know the families that do opt to do just part-time services, they don't always see the same rate of um, change that a lot of, you know, our full-time families get. And I think a lot of it's fear from, you know, the parents, they're afraid that the day will be too long. They're afraid their child will be overwhelmed, but we take very good care of them. Um, and I know, uh, the 40 hours a week is, you know, kind of a standard across the board um, when you're doing ABA for the younger kids. And then once the child is in school, um, a lot of times they'll go to school full time and then do part time services after school to help with like social skills and you know any additional supports that they need. So ABA is definitely a lifelong therapy or at least you know, most of childhood into adulthood therapy. It's not a you do it once and you're good to go. Like it's just a continuous yeah, basis. It's, it's yes. Yeah. Just helping them to meet their goals, but it's always reevaluated every six months. Um, the ABA assessment is redone every six months to see which goals they've mastered um, and then add new goals. Um, and there is parent training involved in that 40 hours as well. So that parents can have that continuity of care when they're not in the clinic, you know, so like if they're working on a potty training program at the clinic, we want to make sure mom and dad are doing the same potty training, you know, routine at home so that when they come back to us, you know, after the weekend, it's like, we're good. We can just jump right in and start instead of having to start all over 
like if we had the you know child in underwear and we were going to the potty every hour and if the parents decided to you know we'll just put them in a diaper for the weekend then you kind of have to reteach those skills when they come back on monday so what is the youngest that a child will start um the aba therapy 18 months before school so eight, 18 months 18 oh my months. goodness yes Yes, I know. I, I love our littles. I know at my clinic, we'll see, uh, the youngest we'll see is two, but the youngest a child can be diagnosed is 18 months. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, these diagnoses come, you know, when when kids are infants or, or toddlers, but like, I'm, I'm digesting the, the feelings a parent's going to go through from, you know, the diagnosis and then the, the stages of grief, however they experience those. And then immediately, you know, if they get it at an early enough time, like jumping right into an yes, intense therapy. Like a full-time job. I remember in like Bela, she didn't learn to walk or to talk till about three, three and a half. And we had always joked with her speech therapist afterwards that we want our money back because now she's never quiet and nothing is filtered before she speaks. Oh, the filterlessness. Oh, I love it. Oh, you'll have to, before we get off, you'll have to share some of the, your favorite stories. Um, it's, I, it would, I like, we talked about this on the phone. I didn't realize that, you know, growing up and, and my boss's kid who had out, um, Asperger's, but also autism, like his filter was not there, but for someone with ADHD, like me, I was like, yeah, I mean, that's just, who's offended? Like, <laughs> you're great. This is great. This is just, just what they say. And then everyone wants is just like very uncomfortable. They're like, what I don't understand. It's like, what, what are we missing here? Like there's, there's nothing wrong with it. And <laughs> yeah, they definitely, they speak their mind. And we had recently had an art meeting for my daughter and one of her teachers said that and it was really cute the way she put it, that one of my daughter's strengths is that she's able to verbally express what she doesn't like and whom she doesn't like. <laughs> that is far beyond what most of us can do. I mean, I'm yes. in the dating world right now and I'm telling you, that is true. That's a gift girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what are some of the things that you think people still have misconceptions about when it comes to autism, the experience, the advocacy, the whole, the whole world of it? Like, you know, there's, you said there's been a lot of growth and I can only hope that's mirrored in the way that society, um, perceptions, biases, what do you think people are still a little bit confused upon? Maybe they're assuming too much from your experience. Right. I think for me, from my experience, I guess it's just understanding those behaviors better. Because when you look at a child that has autism, they don't look like they have a disability. So it's really hard. We've had episodes at the store where, you know, Bela's just lost it. You know, she's on the floor screen. I'm like, okay, I'll wait. I know that you'll be ready to go when you're calm, you know, just kind of waiting that out. And I've had parents make ugly comments, you know, you shouldn't let your child act like that at the store. And I'll just respond back. Yeah, autism's fun, isn't it? And that usually, you know, makes them hush up a little bit and, and carry on. But like, if they looked like they had a physical disability, they would probably have offered help. You know, are you okay? Do you need some help? Um, instead of just judging and thinking that all of our kids that have tantrums were just because of bad parenting, you know, not knowing that the child has a disability. I think that's the hardest thing for, for parents because it's, it's very unpredictable. You never know when you go somewhere, is it going to be too noisy? 
Um, the worst, my gosh, I remember watching, we were at a restaurant and it was somebody's birthday. We didn't know we're eating our meal and like, this is great. No behaviors. And then, you know, in the corner of the restaurant, the, you know, waiters and waitresses started singing and clapping happy birthday really loud. And she lost it. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I couldn't predict that. Um, but that's something that, you know, people wouldn't think because like when they look at you, they don't know that the child has a disability. I've had some families that have like little cards that says, my child has autism, please be patient. And when they go out to eat, they'll kind of pass the cards out to everyone sitting near them so that they would know. Um, I'm not sure if that's, you know, been helpful for them. I've not personally done that, but I know that I guess they must have had enough experiences with people making comments for them to have to take those actions. Yeah, I totally respect that. I think I think most people would respect that, especially um, we want to live in a world that that's not necessary. Absolutely. But I think there's so much to say about taking the prerogative and a thing that, you know, is unpredictable. So lies outside of your control, um, but making the best of it or, you know, just getting to the point where like, I need this to be in the environment that I'm creating where I can, you know, exist with my family and my family and my children can be themselves. And, you know, I think that says a lot. It's definitely self-advocacy at its finest, you know? And so mm -hmm. I hope those, those cards work. I've seen, um, um, uh, email signatures are a big one. I've seen people kind of utilize too, especially in, in the workplace. If they have, you know, learning disability or autism or something that they just kind of want you to know about say, Hey, I'm going to get in front of this. Um, because you're right. It's, it's very hard for people. Even if you were to explain to every person or every, just every parent in the country, like you might not have autism in your experience, but here's what it looks like. You're still going to get people like that, that you encountered at the, at the grocery store. They're just like, don't act, your kids shouldn't act that way. It's like, well, you shouldn't assume so much, you know, right. that's a, that's a hard backtrack to, to have. I think that's kind of a, maybe an evolutionary fault in our ability yes. to kind of really observe and learn something, you know? So, so I, I, I imagine that's empowering that within the community of family uh, that you work with, like there's just this well of resilience that y'all share because of those hard times where people have judgments or maybe you don't get the resource you need. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the strength that you've pulled from working with the families that you have? Yes, it definitely helps fuel the, the fire within, um, just knowing that I'm able to help them, you know, not just for today, but, you know, for their future as well. I'm always looking for opportunities, whether I'm publishing something that may help a family I haven't met yet or having a family stop in the clinic just to get information. We had one family that stopped in not knowing that we see the little kids, you know, at at my facility, wanting information for her son in college, who's really who was struggling with social skills. So I was able to provide that family, you know, information um, to help her in, in that stage because we didn't serve that age in our clinic, but we were still able to help her. So, do you is it often that adults or or just people in general will receive a diagnosis well after childhood, or is that most? almost always going to be a, a diagnosis given in, in, you know, infancy or childhood. There are some, there are some adults as autism is becoming more accepted and something that's 
screened for a lot. There are a lot of uh, adults that receive a diagnosis. Um, there was someone I saw on one of the um, autism pages that he was diagnosed in his 40s with autism. And he said it finally made sense. He said he couldn't, he had uh, trouble keeping a job. He's been divorced three times and he just couldn't figure out why he was struggling to have meaningful relationships. And then when he got the diagnosis, okay, that's why. And so for him, it was a life changer because now he knew what it was. He was able to address it. Um, yeah. But before, just wondering, okay, is it me? Is it them? What's going on? I can only imagine, yeah, the, the is it me thing that falls aside when you do have a better understanding of where you as a person uh, or a self or an, an identity isn't that it's faulty. You just have a rewiring difference. And yeah. to that point, what would you like to see in the future as far as advocacy work goes? You know, what is it? either maybe something you're working towards now or a bigger, you know, a bigger picture or dream um, that you hope happens um, with regards to autism in any, any regard. Right. I would love to see like um, more like resource fairs out there for families on a regular basis, because, you know, the needs of the family changes throughout the year. Like right now, it, it, you might be looking for speech or OT, and that's all you're focusing on. But then once you get those services, now you might be looking for, okay, my child's getting ready to start school. What schools are autism friendly? What schools have the best, you know, inclusion program? Um, and then now, and then once you get there, you know, it might be, I'm looking for a summer camp program that takes children with autism. So the needs that a family has, it's always changing and evolving with that family. Or if a new baby or sister, you know, baby brother or sister is, you know, comes into the family, that can change things. Now you're taking some attention away from, you know, the child with autism to, you know, care for, you know, a, a new sibling and there might be some new behaviors. Um, so it's just having those, you know, resources often, offering them often is really, you know, beneficial. I would love to see more, um, I guess, support groups also for families. And I know it's been really challenging because like, if you do them after work, they're busy taking care of their kids. If you do them during work, they're busy working. So it's always hard, you know, um, to do that. But the resource fairs, we always have seemed to have a large turnout. So you can tell that the demand is there. It, um, the last resource fair I had gone to last summer, I was surprised to hear how far some families had driven to get to that resource fair because they just needed information and they weren't finding anything where they lived. I can only imagine not just in the rural parts of Texas, but across the country, especially in, in the West and the Midwest and such, like just population wise and then the, the spread of where people live, you know, the, the rural yes. areas. Yeah. That's got to yeah, be even some of the big cities too. Like um, earlier this year, I went to an autism conference in Texarkana and there were a handful of families that had driven from Houston. That's a five and a half hour drive. They drove to get resources. I was shocked to see not one, but a whole handful of them that, that didn't know each other that just came for, you know, information. They said the wait lists are very long. Um, the services for, you know, the older kids that are transitioning to the adult years, not so much there, you know, in the Houston area. So they were coming just to get any information. So it just show, goes to show that you know, the demand is there and the demand is higher than what's out there. Um, so it is 
I always say it's, I never turn it off because, you know, it's my life, you know, I, autism at home, autism at work. Um, but it definitely, it, it keeps us going for sure. Yeah. You are the embodiment of the work and change you want to see, which is hard for a lot of people to do in the first place, but you really don't have much of a choice. So, um, <laughs> and, and then more power to you. Tell me, uh, I want to real quick before we sign off, tell me one of these instances of your daughter speaking her mind and using her superpower to just express herself. Oh, yes. So there's um, one of the boys in her therapy class that she doesn't like because he's very noisy and cries a lot. And she has called him Howler Monkey Boy. And I'm like, Bela, you can't. And I'm like, so what her goals is like using kind words. And she's like, fine, I will be kind to every single person except the Howler Monkey Boy. And I'm like, Bella, but everybody, she's like, no, not him. Howler monkeys belong at the zoo, not anywhere else. And I'm like, okay, but you can't say that to people. And she's like, what? But he is. And I'm like, so sometimes it's just hard for her to, you know, to to back down. And uh, also like the literal translation of everything can be frustrating as well. Um, it used to drive me crazy that when she was finished eating, she would leave her dish, she would leave her plate on the table and just walk away. And so I had to give her a reminder one day, Bela, when you're finished eating, don't forget to throw your plate in the sink. She's like, okay. And then she took her plate and she threw it like a Frisbee and it shattered in the sink and I guess I had a look of shock and she looked at me very seriously and said, what's wrong with your face? And I'm like, Isabella, you broke my plate. And she said, you told me to throw it in the sink. I did exactly what you told me to do. And I'm like, you're right. That one is on me. <laughs> so it's made me a better communicator. You know, I was like, take your plate and walk it to the sink, gently set it down without breaking anything else in the process. You know, patience isn't a competition, but I have to say, you must have some of the highest amounts of patience just accumulate over the years. And I think that's so beautiful because, again, you don't have a choice, but, you know, you've taken it full throttle. You're like, you know, this is this is what I know I have to be and do and become and embody to be good at parenting, but also an advocate for my daughter. Yes. Like, and her teachers enjoy her too. We had one uh, incident when she was in first grade where it's again, goes back to like nothing's filtered when she talks and her program at school, she had to give one compliment to at least one person each day. And she'd argue, she's like, but I hate all these people. And I'm like, Bella, just find one nice thing to say, just one thing. And she's like, so you want me to lie? And I'm like, no, surely you can find just one nice thing. And the school she was at was a special needs school for autistic children. So all of them were kind of, you know, they all had their own challenges. And this one day, one of her classmates got angry, had a meltdown, picked up his chair and threw it at the teacher. My daughter stood up and shouted, nice throw. And she was so proud. She gave a compliment all by herself. She gave a compliment. The counselor said he had to go out into the hall to laugh and then go back and tell her that that was not okay. And she's like, but I gave a compliment. So she didn't understand why she was getting in trouble. And she's right. She gave a compliment, but it was not appropriate. And they're like, but Bela, the chair almost hit your teacher. She's like, I know it was a really good throw. So she did not understand yet that 
you know, I guess that someone could have gotten hurt. And, but I mean, it is funny, but she was trying. She gave a compliment all by herself and it wasn't forced. <laughs> and it's rich. Like the genuineness behind her attitude and her behavior is just so, it it's, it gives light. Like it's so uplifting. Now in the moment, obviously not, but even the counselor you said had to step out and have it and have a laugh before coming back around and trying to correct the situation. It's, it's like those who don't understand, who will never understand the experience or be around somebody with autism. Like they can't make these assumptions because you can't just dismiss that kind of richness that is in, it just comes naturally with somebody who's on the spectrum or anybody who might have some, uh, you know, learning disorder or disability. And it's, it's amazing. Right. And I'm, and it's just, again, like hats off to you because, you know, as far as I see it, it's something I'll never understand, but it's, it's nice to get the respect you deserve for just doing the damn thing (laughs) and it's entertaining and people, you know, it's, there's something to learn. I'm sure the experiences you've had with your daughter have been like, you've internalized some and you're like, Oh, okay. Like that's, never thought about that in myself before my character, the way I see the world, you know? Yes. If there's one thing you want to tell, you know, viewers that are either looking for resources or interested in being advocate or, you know, intrigued at all by the conversation today, you know, what, what should be the first step in either getting involved or finding out more for themselves or some, somebody in their life? Right. Well, there's a lot of groups out there online. They can definitely, you know, search you know, and, and find groups that way. But I think for them to have comfort in knowing that they're not alone. Because for me, it was very a very isolating experience in the beginning. Just know that you are not alone. Um, and just knowing where to look. I know for me, I'm not very computer savvy. So I didn't even know there were like Facebook groups or social media pages for autism families. Um, but just knowing that those resources are there, there really is a lot out there. And if they can't find it, they can contact me and I'll help them. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. You've got people from England contacting you. So I'm just going to go yeah. and pass out your card to everybody. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight and your experience. You know how important that is to this field of work. Um, and I'm excited to, to, to have more conversations like this. Anything to get your voice and your story involved, I definitely want that opportunity. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Special thanks to our guest, Carol Tatum, for coming on and sharing her personal experiences, as well as the advocacy work she does around autism. Take advantage of these additional resources about autism and the experiences related to. If you're listening to just the audio version, you can find links to these resources in the description below. This episode and previous interviews are available across our platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Those links are available in the description.